Hello and welcome to ETY Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. I am Bianca Luna Fabris, Communication Officer here at the Institute, and in this episode, we will be focusing on the recent issue of transfer on inequalities and industrial relations. I'm glad to welcome our two guests, the coordinators of the issue, Lisa Dorigatti and Roberto Pedersini, both working at the University of Milan, and their expertise lie on trade unions, industrial relations, and the world of work. So let's start from the very beginning. Why did you decide to focus this issue on inequalities and industrial relations? And maybe Lisa, you would like to jump in first? Yes, uh, thank you, Bianca. Um, so actually the issue of inequality has been on the spotlight uh, and has raised significant attention in the public debate uh, uh, for quite some time now, uh, especially so after the global financial crisis and the following movements, like, for, for example, the Occupy Wall Street, uh, which have contested the rise of income inequality. And one of the key findings uh, uh, that the extant research uh, uh, has provided is that the labor market is one of the key areas in which inequalities are produced, um, as it is where actually value is distributed both uh, between capital and labor and between various types uh, uh, of wage earners. And since industrial relations sectors and industrial relations processes are key in regulating the labor market, they are also key factors in uh, affecting uh, inequality patterns. That's why we decided to have a special issue on this uh, on this issue. Roberto, do you have anything um, to add, perhaps? Yes, thank you, Bianca. Well, trade unions and industrial relations are historically linked to the issue of fairness in the employment relation, solidarity among workers and the improvement in the terms of employment and working conditions. That is why we think that uh, talking about trade unions and industrial relations is important, because in this, I think we can recognize on one hand the request for a more balanced, fair, to some extent, distribution of gains between employers and workers, and on the other, the goal of a more even distribution of the wage bill among workers. However, trade unions can also represent specific groups of workers and collective bargaining may cover only a minority of workers. So in recent years, the question whether trade unions and industrial relations effectively reduce inequality or rather contribute to maintaining or even increasing it by protecting the so-called insider has become more compelling as membership weakened and the deregulation of the labor market threatened workers' protections. That's why we thought that it would be important to have an issue focusing on how effectively trade unions and industrial relations can affect inequality in both ways and to see in which sense we can and in which conditions we can find trade unions and industrial relations contributing to reduce inequality, as in this uh, historical perspective that I mentioned before. Right, so it's clear from what you've been both telling me and telling us that inequality has been a glaring and growing concern over the past decade. Can you perhaps explain to us under which conditions and to what extent should we expect, if at all, industrial relations to reduce inequality? Perhaps, Roberto, you would like to jump in first? Yes, we can try to do that. Of course, it's difficult and we have to simplify, but anyway, Certainly, there are several factors that can influence how industrial relations affect inequality. 
We think that we can distinguish between factors which pertain to industrial relations actors and processes and those which are part of the external context. Among the first ones, certainly the scope of representation and the extent of collective bargaining are prominent. The collective nature of industrial relations is the structural element which contributes to reducing inequality. The more workers you represent and the more you cover, the stronger the equalization effect. In this perspective of large and encompassing organizations engaging in cross-industry bargaining can significantly reduce inequality. Therefore, moving to the second set of factors, a regulatory framework which encourages or even promotes these kinds of representation and collective bargaining, large uh, and encompassing, is important to mitigate inequality. In this, the state and the government initiatives can play a crucial role. Of course, other factors are important too. Just to mention something about the unions, organizing efforts are important to integrate new demands and an inclusive approach to representing general workers' interests rather than specific segments of the labor market can greatly reinforce the equalizing potential of industrial relations. Thank you so much, Roberto. Um, now, um, maybe, um, Lisa, you would like to answer this question, and I'm referring particularly to the article written by Martin Kern. What effects do different collective bargaining regimes have on wage inequality? Yeah, I would say that the, the key take-home point uh, of the article by Martin Kern is that uh, collective bargaining coverage and union density are both uh, negatively related to both types of inequality that are examined in the paper between capital and labor and uh, within the labor side. Hence, uh, what he shows is that single employer bargaining regimes uh, where bargaining coverage uh, is generally lower and bargaining is less coordinated uh, tend to show higher levels of inequality than do uh, multi-employer bargaining systems with higher coverage and stronger uh, coordination. This observation also bears a significant uh, policy implication that the author highlights. Um, indeed, the paper points out uh, the fact that uh, if reducing inequality is a policy priority, as it seems to be, uh, and it seems to be argued by several international organizations, uh, so should be extending the coverage of collective bargaining and supporting uh, union density. Uh, said in other words, uh, if we want to reduce inequalities, uh, we should think of a renewed promotional role of public institutions uh, uh, towards industrial relations sectors uh, and processes, uh, which is something which uh, has been missing from the agenda for quite some time now. Uh, actually, what we have seen over the past decade is that institutions have even gone in the opposite uh, uh, directions uh, by promoting, for example, policies uh, which have weakened industrial relations sectors uh, and their capacity to regulate uh, uh, the labor market. Like, uh, for example, the push for collective bargaining decentralization or uh, the requests uh, for stricter limits uh, uh, to the extension of collective agreements, uh, which have been pushed by international institutions during uh, the Great Recession. 
according to the mainstream views and the neoliberal supply side approaches, these policies uh, should have fostered companies' competitiveness uh, by somehow bringing wages closer to market conditions, uh, being better able to adapt to market conditions, and in general, they should have uh, improved the uh, country's overall competitive position in international markets. Uh, what the extant literature uh, has actually shown is that the contribution of these policies to economic growth uh, is rather dubious, uh, but what uh, has been evident is that they have surely contributed uh, to promote uh, uh, inequalities. So we know that, especially in Southern European countries, labour markets have gone through profound trajectories of liberalisation. Do you think that such policies, and here I'm referring to the article by Depaz, Campo Lima and colleagues, have um, eroded collective bargaining institutions and their role in determining minimum wages? Following the same line of argument that uh, Lisa just mentioned about the general effects of the structure of collective bargaining on inequality, the article by Maria da Paz Campos Lima, Diogo Martins, Ana Cristina Costa, and Antonio Velez on internal devaluation and economic inequality in Portugal provides valuable insights on the potential destructuring effects of the regulation policies on industrial relations with significant consequences for inequality. In that case, in the case of Portugal, in fact, we see that uh, in the aftermath of the economic and financial crisis uh, around, uh, uh, around 2009 and 2010, there was a combination of policies which included wage compression, if not outright cuts in the public sector. They included also the freeze of legal minimum wages labor market deregulation uh, with the increase in precarious and low-paid jobs and the push towards decentralized bargaining that weakened collective bargaining extension mechanism in particular. And all these uh, policies in fact produced an increase in inequality. After that, there was a political uh, change as the new left-wing government took office in the late 2015. Uh, this government implemented a number of uh, reversals, we could say, in certain policy areas, which for instance uh, uh, increased significantly the minimum uh, wage and somehow restored the possibility to extend collective agreements. And this proved to support recovery and also contributed to reduce inequality. And this is one of the uh, significant insights which we can get from that article. But this is not uh, the only thing that we can find there, because the authors also compared uh, four industries, which are quite different in terms of uh, many uh, features, occupational structure, collective bargaining uh, uh, strength, uh, mainly the collective bargaining structure. And these sectors are finance and insurance, manufacturing, construction, and food and accommodation. And they show by looking at different indicators of inequality that the different sectoral features, which I mentioned very uh, briefly just uh, a few moments ago, 
can shape different trajectories in terms of uh, uh, reducing inequality. For instance, certainly the share of low-paid workers and the role of sectoral bargaining, the key role of sectoral bargaining in industrial relations can contribute to amplify the effects of the inclusive policies that the new government introduced since the late 2015. On the other hand, where we can find, like in the, the banking and insurance sector, um, average wages which are higher than in, uh, in, uh, in food and, uh, and, uh, and accommodation, for instance, uh, and also, like in the case of banking, ongoing restructuring, which pushes down, uh, I mean, uh, uh, employment, and of course uh, put pressure on uh, industrial relations trade unions, we can find uh, uh, a lower equalizing uh, effect of both the government policies and industrial relations. Now shifting our focus from Southern Europe to Eastern Europe, and of course here I'm hinting towards the article written by Matroskova and colleagues. Lisa, do you think that we can witness a similar pattern in Eastern European countries? What we see in Eastern European countries uh, is that uh, multi-employer sectoral bargaining institutions uh, tend to be much weaker than in continental Europe. Um, still, what uh, we see by the paper by Martiskova, Kahankova and Kostolny on the Czech and Slovak uh, automotive and retail sectors um, is that industrial relations are not irrelevant either and uh, actor strategies uh, uh, and actors also in this difficult context try to navigate uh, and, to, um, and to produce beneficial effects uh, uh, for workers. Uh, what the paper shows indeed is that uh, in a context of eroding sectoral bargaining institutions uh, or non-existent uh, sectoral bargaining institutions, uh, uh, trade unions have started prioritizing uh, uh, increases in the national statutory minimum wage as a mechanism for reducing uh, wage inequalities. Uh, in this sense, uh, the strategies adopted by trade unions to gain leverage uh, on uh, minimum wage setting and minimum wages, uh, like the media campaigns uh, to push for national minimum wage increases, uh, as in uh, the uh, 2015 campaign by the Czech Trade Union Confederation, which was called uh, an end to cheap labor, uh, can in some way compensate uh, uh, for their declining influence on the wage distribution via uh, collective bargaining. So the message here uh, is, uh, is that uh, um, trade union strategies also matter in more difficult contexts uh, in defining uh, uh, inequality patterns. Focusing back now on the European context, um, in their article, Riva and Rita show that stronger industrial relation institutions then contribute to leveling of intra-class inequality. Perhaps, Roberto, you could explain to us in a few words why this is so. Yes, Bianca, thank you. Well, the article by Egidio Riva and uh, Roberto Rizza provides an important test for the inclusiveness of industrial relations. In fact, as you mentioned, they rely on the Europe-wide nationally representative data set of the European Working Conditions Survey which is carried out by the European Foundation for the Improvement of Living and Working Conditions. By using this data set, they investigate the distribution of occupational, uh, occupational welfare benefits among the workforce. 
Uh, why I mentioned that this is a, an important test for the inclusiveness potential of industrial relations? Well, occupational welfare includes employer-provided benefits, such as health insurance, childcare, access to recreational services sometimes, even uh, holidays and so forth, which may sometimes also be the result of collective bargaining. This is a challenging topic for the study of equality because there is an extensive evidence that this type of benefits are not evenly distributed among the workforce. They tend actually to increase uh, inequality rather than reduce that. Indeed, even uh, collective bargaining may do so since these are usually uh, negotiated at company level so that might be in there might be inequality between the, the company where collective bargaining on these topics takes place and where it does not. And in fact, their analysis confirms that there is a strong association between the access to these occupational welfare benefits and higher skills. So actually, we find this confirmation that the provision of occupational welfare benefits in fact widens the variation in the rewards that employees receive. However, and this is the, the interesting point that Riva and Risa uh, make, they show that different industrial relations systems are linked with quite distinct outcomes. The high-density, high-coverage and highly-coordinated Nordic system ensures the broadest diffusion of such benefits and their even or more even distribution across skill levels. Uh, in fact, there are uh, no differences in countries belonging to this system in terms of distribution of, or access to these uh, benefits across different skill levels. And these effects even get stronger in recent years, so that this, there is not a weakening somehow, uh, say, capacity of the industrial relations system to reduce inequality in the provision of these benefits. And at the same time, as we move to countries where the industrial relations system gets more decentralized or even fragmented, both across countries and through time, we can see that the reach of occupational uh, welfare shrinks and differences widen. So, we believe that this evidence speaks especially to policymakers. This is a point that we try to underline uh, in this discussion about uh, the issue in general and the different articles in particular. Because uh, if policymakers are actually aiming at finding ways to reduce inequality, all these uh, uh, articles and the evidence, including the evidence that uh, Riva and Ritza provide, point to a quite easy solution, well, not a solution maybe, but a possibility to, to support strong and inclusive industrial relations, because this seems to quite uh, effectively contribute to uh, reduce inequality.
I think that's quite a punchline that you have just uh, laid out right there. So to reduce inequality, you basically need strong and inclusive industrial relations. So that's, yeah, that's a, that's a good take home point. Um, so concluding with the very last question of our um, episode, um, and I would like to focus this question on the article by Berton and colleagues. And I found this article um, quite uh, enticing and also a bit um, thought provoking. Um, so they focus on industrial relation institutions and labor market segmentation. But the authors then seem to pose certain doubts on the role of collective bargaining as the vehicle for ensuring equality. Do you think this is really the case, Lisa? I actually would say that the one raised by Baton and colleagues uh, with their important study on collective bargaining at company level in four different countries, Australia, Canada, Denmark and France, is quite a tricky issue and also one which has been strongly mobilized by um, usually right-wing neoliberal trade union uh, opponents. Uh, that is the question whether trade unions do actually increase inequalities among wage earners uh, uh, by focusing on the strongest segments uh, of the workforce, those with uh, permanent contracts, uh, the so-called insiders, uh, uh, where union density usually concentrates uh, at the expense of the weakest uh, segments of uh, the workforce, the more precarious, the so-called outsiders. Uh, what the paper by Barton and colleagues show in different cases at company level does uh, is to warn us uh, that this might indeed be the case. Uh, however, what comes out also uh, from uh, the paper is that uh, this is most likely to happen under conditions uh, of weakening institutional supports uh, uh, for labor. Like, for example, uh, decentralization of collective bargaining, uh, uh, reduction of uh, uh, legislative supports, uh, uh, for uh, equality, uh, which give employers more leverage, uh, more uh, bargaining power, and reduce the power of labor actors, uh, which uh, this might open up uh, the risk of somehow inward-looking and anti-solidaristic uh, behavior. This is actually a scenario, a point, uh, which has been made also by other colleagues, uh, which have labeled these as vicious uh, circles. Uh, circles between uh, fragmented institutions uh, which trigger in exclusive uh, union strategies uh, uh, focusing on insiders, uh, uh, trigger ag again uh, particularistic forms uh, of uh, worker identification and uh, exclusive uh, solidarities which at the end exacerbate uh, inequalities and uh, divides. So the, the direction of the policy priorities we were discussing before, that is uh, the necessity of strengthening institutional supports for trade unions and collective bargaining institutions in order to foster uh, more uh, equality. This is actually the opposite view of what uh, usually insider-outsider theorists, uh, which are the ones which mostly mobilize this evidence, usually recommend, uh, which is getting rid of trade unions in order to uh, reduce uh, insider-outsider divides. I would say, however, that this paper also talks to unions uh, and, want, and warns somehow against uh, the idea that uh, uh, segmentation and segmentalist approaches uh, often pursued in the framework of uh, concession bargaining are actually viable and long-run options uh, for sustaining uh, trade union power. 
they show that this is often not the case and that segmentally strategies which are pushed in the attempt to do the lesser evil might at the end backfire and even damage not only the insider so being not a way to escape the difficulties for insiders but even damage the image of trade unions as possibly progressive actors in the labor market. Thank you so much to all of the listeners that have managed to stick with us this far. So, so thank you for being with us. Um, if you'd like to know more about um, the issue, you can, of course, um, find it in the show notes. There will be a link right there. Um, but you can also equally find it at journals.sagepub.com slash home slash TRS. Thank you so much for listening.